So I might ask you, what, what sort of circumstances tempt you to fear that God has forgotten you? You ever had that happen to you? Some of you came here this morning even wondering if there is a God. Maybe your circumstances are so daunting and so overwhelming that you just, it's hard. It's hard to maybe even sing songs like the one we just sang. Because you wonder, is, is he there? Our flock, I know, has many sorrows that could tempt us that way. As we pray regularly through the membership directory, often moved by the burdens that I know so many of us bear. Health struggles that just don't seem to go away. Personal strife. Maybe friends that used to be friends that is just cold now. Maybe betrayals that you just never saw coming. Maybe there's histories of, of abuse. Maybe even going on right now for some of you. It seems to cloud out God. Maybe there's financial troubles. Different sorts of injustices. I think we could go around and we could fill books with with the sorts of things that tempt us to fear and to doubt God. Because so oftentimes our circumstances, they cry loud. And God seems so quiet. But this is why God gives us His Word. And stories like the book of Esther that are given to remind us that though God may seem absent, He is ever-present in the midst of His people's trials. That even when we forget Him and we doubt Him, that He never forgets the promises that He makes to us. And that He is always, always, always working all things, all things, all things together for the good of His people according to His good and perfect character. That's what we're going to consider this morning as we complete our series in the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one for you there in the pew rack right in front of you. Page 414 is where we will be. It'll help you to follow along. I will skim through some portions of this. We're covering three chapters, but it will. I'll, I'll tell you where we are so you can, you can follow along. And you've also got a whole page here on page 9 just to jot down anything that the Lord shows you today through His Word that you think, I need to think about that or talk about that with someone else. So I encourage you to maybe jot down some notes. In case you're just joining us in this story, let me catch you up to what is, what is happening here. We have a book that is unique among all the other books in the Bible in that God's name is not mentioned. This is the one book in all of Scripture where God's name is not mentioned, but His fingerprints are on every event that happened all the way through the book. So that when you get done the book and somebody tells you what I just told you, you're supposed to say, I don't believe you. And you read back through and you're like, His name's not there. But He was everywhere present. See, the story is, it takes place during the time when the Jews who had been exiled into Babylon and then had been taken over by Persia were given freedom to go back to their homeland in Jerusalem. And many Jews did go back, but many more did not. They stayed back in, in Persia. They disobeyed the commandment of God to go back, and they stayed there in, in, in the land of Persia. And there was a wicked king named Xerxes, and he, he ruled over them. And we get yeah, placed in the middle of this story where the king is throwing a party, trying to rally together some other um, leaders to come and to fight in one of his battles, and he wants to show off his uh, wife Vashti, who is beautiful, at a party, and he calls her to come out, and she says no, and he says, well, I'm going to make an example out of her, and so he gets rid of her, 
And now he needs a new queen. So he holds what, uh, yeah, what you might call a, uh, yeah, a wicked beauty pageant where he is going to gather beautiful virgins from all over the world and bring them in and through very wicked ways take one of them to be his, his new queen. Well, it just so happens that the, the woman who is selected is a beautiful young Jewish woman. And she becomes queen in the place of Vashti. And uh, all is well until all of a sudden um, there is a wicked man named Haman who is exalted to be the right-hand man of, the, of King Xerxes. And Haman hates this guy Mordecai who is Esther's cousin uh, because he won't bow down to him. You see, he loves his own glory and he thinks everybody else ought to as well. And when people won't bow down to him, he gets enraged. So he says, I'm going to kill Mordecai and not just Mordecai, but I'm going to kill all his people, all the Jews. So he issues this decree in uh, uh, working with the king, this decree that says all the Jews are going to be executed. He's issued a holocaust for all of God's people. And Mordecai comes to Esther and says to her, hey, listen, don't be thinking that just because you're the queen that you can hide out there in the palace and that you're going to be safe and escape this trouble that is coming because there will be a deliverance, but you you will not make it. And he encourages her to be bold and to use her platform as the queen to speak to this wicked king. And he does, she does. She comes courageously saying, if I perish, I perish. Because you can't just waltz into the king. She had been told to stay away for 30 days. But she goes in courageously and she, she asks the king to come to a, a feast because there she's going to kind of roll out what's happening. And, uh, and then she says at that feast, hey, how about we do another feast? Uh, we don't know why, if she just needs more time to plot and to plan. But all the while, God is working. And you've got Haman on the other side who's thinking, man, I get invited to this, this feast with the king and with the queen, and I'm really being exalted, and everybody's applauding him. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang that wicked, that wicked Mordecai on some gallows. So he, he gets these 75-foot-tall gallows made just for Haman. He's got Haman's name written all over it, and things are looking bleak. So the next morning, Haman uh, comes in to work, and uh, he's, he's, he's coming in happy, clappy, thinking things are about to go good for him. And it just so happens, though, the night before, the king gotten, uh, was reading through his book of the Chronicles and learned that this Mordecai guy had been part of exposing an assassination plot earlier, and that he had not been honored yet. So in work walks Haman, and uh, the king says, hey, what should I do to somebody who honors the king? And he says, I'll tell you what you should do. And he gives this long laundry list of everything that he ever wished would happen to him in, exalt, in uh, exalting him. And uh, sure enough, he says, well, go do that for Mordecai. And he's like, really? And he does that, and so Mordecai is, is exalted. And then Haman comes to this feast that Esther had prepared, and the, Esther tells the, the king, hey, here's the deal. Somebody is plotting to kill me and all of my people. And he says, who is it? And she says, it's that guy. And Haman goes all of a sudden from being this guy who's on top of the world thinking he's about to crush God's people to all of a sudden, he's now hanging on those gallows. There's a great reversal where God brings judgment on his enemies. And it seems like you could just end the book there. But that's not where the book ends. That's at the end of chapter 7. So we come today in chapter 8, and we pick up the story because there's still a problem going on. 
Haman is gone, but there is a, a terrifying tension that remains because the, ish, the edict issued by the Persian king that is called for this holocaust of the Jews is still on the books, and according to Persian law, you can't just scratch it. Daniel chapter 6, verse 15 gives us this same information for us, that whenever a king in Persia made an edict, it's on the books and you can't take it off. So God's people here are afraid. What will happen? And we're going to trace what God does in the midst of this through the rest of the story. Our big idea this morning, if you're looking for one, is that God reverses his people's plight and gives them reasons to rejoice. God reverses his people's plight and gives them reasons to rejoice. Now, we don't exactly have points as we walk through this, but what we are going to see is a, a series of stunning reversals in, in, which, in which God is going to change the circumstances of his people and their enemies. He's going to they're going to be in these terrifying, sorrowful circumstances, but we're going to see that he will faithfully flip the script and make things good for them in a way that only God could, could do it. And again, God's name's never going to be mentioned, but you're going to watch that he remains faithful even when you can't see him working. Chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, by the way, in case you weren't with us, King Ahasuerus is King Xerxes. And since Xerxes is easier to say, I say Xerxes all the way through here. So in case that's confusing to you. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Right out of the gate, we see two reversals. The first we notice here is a reversal of power, a reversal of, of power. Back in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So Haman was exalted. He was given political power that he used for self-promoting glory. But one of the things we learn when we read through the Scriptures is that political power isn't secure. It's fleeting like the wind, and God can reverse its course at any time, which is exactly what happens here, because now Haman's dead, and in chapter 8, verse 2, Mordecai is given the king's signet ring, and just like Joseph, he went from being seconds away from death to all of a sudden now second in command. God can do that in a moment, because political power, though it seems daunting at times, it's nothing in the hands of God. He can flip the script just like that. That's why you don't trust in it. Well, there's another reversal. I'm not sure if you caught it here, but there's a reversal of property. So we have a reversal of power, but there's also here a reversal of, of property. So everything that Haman owned is now given to Esther, who gives it to Mordecai. See, in, in Persia, what would happen is the property of traitors... So if you were accused of, of treason, it would be taken away from your family after you're executed, and it would be given to the, the monarchy, and they get to do whatever they want to with it. Now, you can obviously how, see how corruption and oppression could sneak in on that one real fast. Uh, you might even think of Jezebel and what she did with Naboth's vineyard. 
All right? You had a, a righteous man who said, I like that plot of land. What are we going to do? Let's set him up and let's take it. So that can go bad. But here, it was deserved. Haman was a wicked man. And this is also, though, even though nobody talks about God here, this is a, a partial fulfillment of one of, of the Proverbs of God. Proverbs 13, 22, it says, The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. How many of you know that in an instant, God can turn the tables on a financial situation? I mean, right here. Haman had wasted his entire fleeting life investing in fleeting power, pay, uh, fame, and, and wealth. And in an instant, it's gone. Psalm 39.6 says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. Haman here is an example to avoid, that he had foolishly used his entire life to gain what ultimately cost him his soul. Beware of building your life on fleeting pleasures. So we've got a reversal of power and a reversal of property right out of the gate. And now we're going to see a reversal of policy, a reversal of policy. You see, Esther knows that the Jews are still in danger because Haman's laws are still in the books, still legally binding. So she's going to come in and beg one more time before the king. Chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out his golden scepter, so this is the second time that she's gained favor. Because remember, he could just extend a sword and say, I'm done with you. And he's been known to do that with queens that get on his nerves. But here he, he extends the scepter. And Esther rose, verse 5, and said, If it please the king, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Verse 7, King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, verse 8, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So here again we see this allusion to the fact that this former edict can't be done away with, but what you can do is you can devise a new one to counteract it. So he's, he says, basically, y'all come up with the idea. I'll sign the executive order. I'll put my stamp on it, and it'll be good to go. Now, before we press on, I just think it's good to note here just another example of, of a foolish political procedure here that is put in place that is not aimed at the good of the people that it's intended to serve. Government, by God, is designed to be good for the people but when you fill it with wicked people, it can become, as Revelation portrays it, a, a beast that consumes people. And here you've got this, this procedure, this, this way we do things among the Persians that won't let you go back and say, I need to humble myself and say what I put into law was a bad law and we need to revoke it. There's way too much pride on the line here. So he just says, well, let's just make another law, which is actually going to evoke a civil war in the middle of this place, and it's going to cause more bloodshed. 
Just a word of reminder for those of you who have influence in shaping policies. Remember that the purpose of government is for the good of the people, not to exalt those who are in it and to save face. Chapter 8, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivah. That's May, June. Uh, on our calendars. And an edict was written concerning the Jews to all the leaders and the peoples in their language. Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, to plunder their goods. And on one day, throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So basically, the new decree here, Mordecai takes the same decree that was made against the Jews, and he fills in the names of those who plan to destroy them. He is flipping the, the script here. Now, this is not supposed to be a free pass to imperialize or terrorize. This is supposed to be a permission to protect themselves against those who uh, were aiming to kill them. Now, just pause here. Playing in the background of this story is another story. We talked about it uh, in the first sermon. Um, and this is the story of some unfinished business. You remember that God doesn't forget, even though his people may. Haman, as we've heard a couple times, is an Agagite, which means he's a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. It's mentioned actually five times in the book of Esther, chapter 3, 1, 3, 10, 8, 3, 8, 5, and 9, 24. Five times in these 10 chapters, the, the Lord wants us to know this guy is a descendant of Agag, which is a big deal because Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. And if you'll remember, King Saul was supposed to slay Agag and all the Amalekites as an act of divine justice, but he didn't do it. So here what God is doing in the background is, he is he's continuing that work of divine judgment. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute because there may be some questions. We're going to come back to that, though. But just I want you to hear that's playing in the background here. This is why as you read the Bible, you're going to notice that stories weave in with stories because you have the, the author of all things working all things together in a, a glorious tapestry. Well, we've had a reversal of power. We've had a reversal of property. We've had a reversal of policy. Now we have a reversal of perspective. And I ran out of peas after that, but you'll bear with me. Anyway. Here the outlook was bleak for God's people, All right? You got Haman's first edict is proclaimed, and there is sadness and sorrow. If you look back in chapter 4, verse 3, it says, wherever the king's decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. But now there's been an intervention. So in chapter 8, verse 13, the new edict is posted publicly. Chapter uh, 8, verse 14, it's FedExed throughout Persia. And now in verse 15, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. 
And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. (laughs) The tables have turned for God's people. There was darkness, but now there's what? There's light. There was grief, but now there's what? Gladness and, 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 and joy. There was shame, but now there's honor. There was fear, but now there's what? Feasting, right? There's, there's a reversal going on here. This is what God's doing. This whole book, He is reversing here. And there's a reversal here of perspective from the fear of what is coming being so weighty that you remember from chapter 1, it's like it eclipsed all of the hope that could even be, that they could look for. It was eclipsed, but now God has flipped it and light radiates in. The light of God's faithfulness, which they don't even mention here, but light shines in and they are celebrating. God has moved on behalf of His people. And that's something that we as the readers are supposed to notice. As we're reading through this, we're supposed to say, something is missing here. The text is strikingly silent about the most important part of the whole story. What's that? God. The Jews, the Jews here, may, it seems like they just think things got better. I mean, a political policy has changed and now the king is on their side. But that's a misinterpretation of these events. This was not coincidence. This was providence. You see, God has acted for his people. God is the one who has turned the heart of the king. God is the one who reversed the circumstances that have lifted their countenance. Psalm 30 verse 11 would say it this way. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. All that stuff's in the text right here. God has worked. But here, it seems like he gets no credits. But we're supposed to see it and know. Well, there's now a reversal of allegiance. So if anybody can come up with a P uh, that fits the same thing as, as allegiance, please let me know. But there's a reversal now of allegiance that comes. A reversal of of worship, if you will, 817. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, we don't know everything that happened here, but many of the Persians changed their allegiance from the pagan gods, it appears, and their ways to Judaism. Now, certainly, most certainly, some people here converted because they didn't want to be killed. I mean, that's, 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 that's certain, right? I mean, this has happened through church history. Think about the wicked crusades in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries where you come in with a sword and you say, convert or die. Like, if you ever want to get some false conversions, like, that's, that's a way to do it. All right, this is why I think merely having evangelism that says, hey, do you not want to go to hell? Then come to Jesus is not the best of the best sort of evangelism. That's true, but it's not the whole story. It's that God is better 
than whatever else, right? So, yes, it's true that when a, a country forces or makes it advantageous to be a child of God, there's a lot of trouble that can come. But there certainly here were Persians putting faith in the one true God. God is most certainly working in here because that's just what He does. He's always saving a people for Himself. Because imagine that some of, some of these Persians probably asked their Jewish neighbors, right? They said, all right, listen, this, what does it mean to be a Jew? It went from we're supposed to kill the Jews to now we're going to be killed if we're not a Jew. What, what's, what is a Jew? What an opportunity for evangelism, right? Well, let me tell you a little story. You see, God created the world, and He created people to know Him, love Him, and enjoy Him, but we rebelled against Him. It's called sin. And because of that, death is coming into the world. It's been evidenced by the fact that the whole world rebelled against God, and He flooded it with water. But then, God saved some people through that, and He formed a new nation, the nation of Israel. You see, our forefather Abraham used to be a pagan just like you, used to worship idols just like you, but God called him out and he made him a covenant promise. So now we, as the Jewish people, we have a hope of a Messiah who is going to come, who's going to make all wrongs right, who's going to take us to a land, a land where there's going to be no more crying or tears or pain, a, a land where God's presence and his blessing is with us. This is the heart of what it means to be a Jew. Do you want to be? And I suspect in glory we will see some of these Persians worshiping around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ who, who would be the fulfillment of their hope, the one who was to come, just as we worship the one who did come and is coming again. By the way, this is not unlike something that God does all the way through His history. You'll remember um, the Egyptians. Many Egyptians were converted through the plagues, and they joined Israel in their way out through the Red Sea. You had Rahab um, who joined Israelites uh, during during the conquest. So this is something that God's always doing. He's always saving a people here. And we see a reversal of allegiance, which is just a good reminder for us that as we are exiles in a foreign land, that this world is not ultimately our home, right? That we need to be mindful to always be making known the hope that is within us, as 1 Peter 3.15 calls us to do. We as exiles always proclaiming, hey, this ain't it. No matter how much you can duct tape this thing together through all the different ways we try to, this is not the end. There's, there's a better land coming, and God is the one who we should seek. So, a reversal of allegiance. And now we have a reversal of circumstance in chapter 9. A reversal of circumstance. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, which is, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Now, if you're into underlining stuff in your Bible, you should underline that right there. The reverse occurred. If you're not, you just make your notes to the side. That's fine. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This is a perfect summary of the book, and as we'll see in a couple minutes, of the whole Bible. This is what God is doing. God reversed with here poetic wisdom the plight of His people. On the very day that they were to be consumed by their enemies, instead their enemies would be consumed. God with poetic justice right here. Now, a word about God and His justice. We, we talked about this in previous sermons, so I'm not going to go into everything that we did before talking about the goodness of God's justice. 
which is true, that if God is good, he will be just. His justice and goodness are, are hand in hand. They're expressions of his right character. If God doesn't bring justice, then he's not a good God. And what we see here is God is working here, but he's working in the midst of a mess, which is how he always works. Because on the one hand, there is a sense of divine justice that is coming on those who sought to kill the Jews, right? So this would be like the execution of Hitler's henchmen during the, the Holocaust trials, right? This is a good sort of justice that is coming because it, it needs to happen. This is also carried out divine justice against the Amalekites that we mentioned a, a moment ago. So there's, there's good divine justice that's working here. But on the other hand, Esther and Mordecai and the Jews, they are going to go, it appears, they're going to go Jehu, which if you remember him from the Old Testament, he had an edict from God to do some justice, but he didn't stop. And he just kept going, and all sorts of bloodshed that turned out being unjust and wicked was on his hands. And it appears the same sort of thing is going to happen here. Esther and Mordecai and the Jews seem to go beyond mere self-defense. Their actions prove to be almost no different than their pagan neighbors and their intent. Esther becomes unnecessarily vengeful. She's going to ask for another day to finish the work, if you will. Now, as I mentioned, at times under the Old Covenant, God commanded His people to war against unbelieving people as an act of just judgment. But there's no evidence here of a clear divine directive. This is a sanction from the Persian state. Now, if you want to think more about some of those hard questions that come with that, we have a, um, an apologetics class this summer, and on... August 1st, in that chapel, Ben Robin is going to answer every question that you have about a tricky subject like that. So um, anyway, but no, it is, it's a serious and, and weighty thing. And if you're a thinking person, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this is something that you need to wrestle with in the way that God presents himself in, in the Bible. So we'll think more about that there. But I just want to highlight here that God is working in the midst of a mess. There's good justice that's coming, but there's also, it seems to be, people taking things into their own hands. Chapter 9, verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Verse 3, all the officials also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them as they did, and they did as pleased, uh, they did as they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 10, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And then in verse 13, we get Esther requesting an extra day to fight. If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to the day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. The king grants it. Verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them but they laid no hands on the plunder. Though I do think it, it appears that there was some taking, taking things too far in regards to their vengeance, the text wants us to see twice 
is highlighted in verse chapter 9, verse 10 and verse 16, that the Jews did not take the plunder. This was not about imperialism. This was not about them just trying to rob everybody. The, the, the motive for this was supposed to be self-defense. We'll have to Lord, let the Lord sort out all of that. But this reversal of circumstance here is going to lead now to a call for celebration that is going to be remembered by the Jews forevermore. Chapter 9, verse, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces, provinces of King Xerxes. Verse 21 obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews go, got relief from their enemies and as the month that, they had, that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. 4, verse 24, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots. It's a Persian word for lots is pur. It's dice. To crush and to destroy them. Verse 25, but when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. Again, if you're underlining things, you could underline that, this reversal. And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Again, the Persian word for Lot. Verse 32, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10, verse 1, King Xerxes imposed tax on the land and the coastlands of the sea. So, by the way, this is reversing the temporary remission of taxes back in chapter 2, verse 18. Verse 2, and all the acts of his power and his might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? That's a non-scriptural book, but you can buy it online. Verse 3, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. So this book leads us here to kind of the pinnacle as, for the reader of this, this great reversal, right? You had the reversal of Mordecai. Here we have one who was supposed to have died on a tree. One who was persecuted and oppressed and was supposed to be hung high on a tree, but now he is exalted in glory as one who it's like he's alive from the dead. And here he serves his people and he speaks peace to them and he cares for the poor. It's supposed to make us say, that sounds like someone else I know. Which is what every book in the scriptures is intended to do. It's supposed to make you say, okay, how does Jesus fulfill this? You see, this book is intended to finally lead us to a reversal of focus. A reversal of, of focus. The book of Esther is intended to point to a greater, more glorious story. 
A story not about the greatness of the Jews, but about the greatness of their God. You see, when you read through the book of, when you read through the book of Esther's, you're not supposed to say, oh, look at all of the heroes. That, that's not the way that it's supposed to work. Xerxes was a wicked king. God simply changes his heart to bring about his perfect purposes. Esther and Mordecai, they had assimilated into Persian culture. They had disobeyed God's word to go back to the land. And yes, they have some wonderful moments of courage that we can emulate. But they are not held up as the example uh, that we are to follow, ultimately. They are seen as fearful and manipulative and vengeful. Same with the Jewish people. In, in many instances, they're not seen here to be the strong ones who have it all together. and they, they, they save themselves. In fact, they end up being much like their pagan neighbors. You see, Esther is not a book that is supposed to make you think highly of its characters, but it's supposed to make you think highly of its author, of God who gave this and who orchestrated everything. You see, God is only an he only and always works in and through his imperfect people. That's one of the reasons. People, people oftentimes will use the charge of look at all the, the wicked people in the Bible as kind of a charge against Christianity being true. To which a Christian should say, actually, that's kind of the whole point. There's nobody in the Bible who has it all together. In a classic uh, Simpsons episode, Homer's reading the Bible. And as he reads through, he closes it and he goes, man... He goes, nobody's got it together in that book except this one guy, <laughs> Jesus, right? And that's how it's supposed to go. When you're reading through here, you're not supposed to be amazed by all of the characters. You're supposed to be amazed that the main character is neglected through the whole thing. He's not mentioned. He's not, he, he's forgotten. And that's not intended to make us think lightly of our sin, but have hope in our Savior. You see, God is a God who saves His people. And, and, and they must not fear that though they're in exile, and yes, there is oppression that's coming, and yes, there are fearful things, they've got to understand, we've got to understand that evil has an expiration date. Evil does not win. Dr. Tony Evans once said, if you are a Christian, you do not live a threatened life. Yes, there are things that are threatening, but God has the final say. Christians, this is why we do not need to live in fear, because we have a God who is greater than anything that you can fear. That's why the fear of God is simply the reorientation from inappropriate fears to proper fear. We fear Him who rules over all things. You see, Haman, when we're studying through this, Haman looked like he was invincible. I mean, imagine living in that day when the most powerful person in the world, all he wants to do is kill you and those who are like you. That's a terrifying place to be. He looked like he was poised to trample upon God's people, but he had no staying power. God pulled the plug on him. This is why we, can we don't need to fear as we stand against evil. Because you are a child of God. Listen to this from Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is faithful. 
Listen, saints, there are things that are terrifying. They are. But our God is greater. And what He promises us is greater. I remember um, it was a couple years ago now, Greg and I were having a conversation, and we were talking about this, this very text. And uh, we were talking about what happens when somebody threatens you, like they're going to kill you for Christ or something like that. He goes, what, you go threaten me with heaven? Okay. <laughs> I mean, what, what can they do? This is why the first call of the gospel is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You've got to be a dead man to follow Jesus. Because if you're dead, what are you going to fear? There's nothing to fear. You've already died in Christ, and he makes you alive to live forever. There's no need to fear. And, and, and God wants his people to remember this. This is what's even behind God leading Mordecai to institute this feast Right? This feast that he, he puts in here, a Purim, is remembered annually in which the Jews celebrate the victory that they had over their enemies. And it still happens annually every year. It's celebrated in late February, early March. And of all the Jewish festivals, this is the most festive. It's the most celebratory. Because they, they're coming together to remember the God who helped them. And they mocked their persecutors because God mocked their persecutors and put them down and delivered them as he promises that he always will. By the way, that's a theme in the Bible, this reversal of focus. Let's, let's, let's think about other reversals, right? <laughs> well, I mean, what do you get when you try to exterminate God's people? This is a, a riddle, okay? What do you get when you try to exterminate God's people in the Bible? You get a feast. You get a party. That's what you get. Think about it. Pharaoh tried to slaughter the Jews, but what came from that? The Feast of Passover, right? You've got Haman who tried to execute the Jews, and from it, here comes the Feast of Purim. You had Antiochus Epiphanes who tried to exterminate the Jews, and from that came Hanukkah. Judas and Pilate tried to exterminate Jesus, and what comes from that? The Last Supper. Antichrist, what'd you say? That too, yes. <laughs> Antichrist, Antichrist tries to destroy God's people, and what do we get at the end of the book of Revelation? The wedding supper of the Lamb. Anytime you try to extinguish God's people, God's going to turn that thing into a party. That's what he does. He says, yes, there may be sorrow for the moment. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, people will lose their lives for my sake, but do not fear. Because I am victorious. He rose from the dead, and he's going to make all things right. Evil does not get the last laugh in God's universe. God wins. This is what he does. He overcomes. And all of this is intended to focus our hearts upon the one who brings that deliverance, Jesus himself. You see, Jesus taught that all of the scriptures point to him. And that is true in this book as well. You see, we have a worse enemy than Haman, right? Satan is the enemy who steals, kills, and destroys and was behind Haman, yet Jesus defeated Satan. We are more vulnerable than the Jews were. They were in a most precarious position. They were doomed that there was nothing that they could do. How much more us in our sin? Ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with him, right? 
there, there, was a, there was a better death than that of Haman. Right? Haman hung shamefully on a tree for his own sins. But how many of you know that there was another man who hung shamefully on a tree, but not for his sins, but for yours? That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. You see, this is about Jesus ultimately. You see, we have a better intercessor than Esther. She courageously went before the king. She was willing to perish. But how much better is Jesus? Who he did perish, not for his sins, but for ours, and then rose from the dead and has ascended and now seats at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.35, that's good news. And we have a more glorious ruler than Mordecai. Here at the end of the book, he is exalted with great fame, and he has a great name. He cares for the, the poor. He, he speaks peace. Yet how much greater is Jesus? who speaks peace, but unto speak peace, but he is peace. He himself is our peace. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, before whom all bow. This is our King. Jesus is better than Mordecai. And through King Jesus, we get a greater reversal of decree. You see, we were doomed to judgment, but Christ, through him and through faith in him, a greater decree has been declared. Right? You see, there was a decree of condemnation against you and me for our sins. But if you are in Christ, there's a new decree. Forgiven. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was a decree of death against you because of Adam's sin. You eat of this, surely you shall die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of that sin is death. Everybody was dead in their trespasses and sins, and you were going to not just die, but die eternally, separated from God under his just judgment in hell. But God, through Christ, gives a new decree that if you come to me who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, if you're thirsty, I'll give you water that you'll never thirst for again. If you're hungry, I am the bread of life. In him, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And in him is eternal life. The decree of death has been overturned because of his life. The decree of shame and guilt against you because of your rebellion. That was true. But if you are in Christ, your shame, silenced. If you are in Christ, your guilt is gone because Christ bore it. You are now covered, not in shame, but you are covered in his perfect, glorious righteousness, able to stand before the throne of the Holy One of Heaven. Boldly, the text says, not because of how awesome you are, but because of how awesome Jesus is. Not how faithful you are in this life, but because of how faithful he is and has been and ever will be. And we have a better celebration than that of Purim. You see, they have an annual reminder of deliverance from their enemies, which is good, but it ain't the best. You see, for those who are in Christ, we have a regular reminder that we can take up the song of 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, by faith, Every day, we feast upon Christ. Every time we gather together, we feast as his people upon his word. We gather to sing of his faithfulness. 
We gather to hear of his faithfulness. We gather to see his faithfulness through the ordinances. Here in just a second, Eric Butterball, one of our pastors, is going to come up and lead us through the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of a feast that we as God's people are called to every single day. And listen, y'all, this feast that we're doing this morning, it's good, but it ain't what it's going to be. A few things remind us like that, whatever we're about to unpeel, okay? It's there's an already, but a not yet for God's people. It's, it's a reminder, though, of his body and his blood that is given for us that is our ticket, if you will, to the day of glory that is coming, to a greater feast, this one that we began our service with today. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, and that's all his people who through faith in Christ have trusted in him. He will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad, just like in Esther, and rejoice in his salvation. So dear saints, in this day, God calls us by faith to look to that day, a day of certainty, and draw hope and strength into these days of uncertainty. And when all the things tempt you, the fearful things tempt you to wonder if God is even there, God's word is to remind us that he is. He's faithful even when it feels like he's forgot you. He is near even when it feels like he is far. And he is coming soon and very soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us. You would help us, O oh Lord, to be a people who trust you. O oh Lord, the clouds often gather. They block out the sun. They hinder us from seeing you. But God, we thank you for your word, which reminds us that you are faithful. So Father, we, we ask that for your glory and for our good that you would work in the midst of all of our mess. Oh, Lord, we confess we are unfaithful, so prone to wander and leave the God whom we love. Some of us in here still have not surrendered to Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you take your word and would you work in us? Would you stir faith and strengthen faith? And would you help us to cling to you knowing that we're almost home? Come soon, Lord Jesus. Finish the glorious work that you have begun. We pray this in his name. Amen.